This episode has been brought to you in part by the Azrieli Music Prizes. Join them in celebrating artistic excellence at the AMP Gala Concert, live from Maison Symphonique in Montreal, happening October 20th at 7.30 p.m. Eastern. Orchestre Metropolitain will premiere award-winning music by laureates Aharon Harla, Iman Habibi, and Rita Ueda. Learn more at azrielifoundation.org backslash AMP. That's what it sounded like earlier this month when an estimated 50,000 people came out in downtown Richmond Hill, Ontario, to a rally organized by Iranian Canadians. It was a show of support for the freedom protests now going on across Iran, led by mainly women and girls, which started after the death of 22-year-old Masa Amini on September 16th. The young Kurdish-Iranian woman had been picked up by Iran's morality police and taken to a re-education center because they accused her of showing too much hair under her mandatory headscarf. Meanwhile, the Canadian government has now announced sanctions on Iran, banning 10,000 members of the Iranian government and its Revolutionary Guard from coming to Canada and laundering money here. But Ottawa still hasn't designated them as terrorists. And watching it all unfold has been Dianush Youssefi. She's a Jewish lawyer and human rights activist in Toronto. She was born in Iran, and she and her family lived through the Iranian Revolution in 79, which turned the entire country into an Islamic republic that's now been in power for over 40 years. When Dianush was 11, she and her family escaped from Tehran with just the coats on their backs and some jewelry sewn into their coats. Now she hopes the current protests will finally end the regime's long clampdown on freedom. I think the, the hope, the aim is that there will be enough awareness and enough pressure from the general population so that Western governments will take steps that will actually help to affect change in government. I'm Ellen Besner, and this is what Jewish Canada sounds like for Thursday, October the 13th, 2022. Welcome to the CJN Daily, a podcast of the Canadian Jewish News, sponsored by Metropia. Jews have lived in Iran for nearly 3,000 years since the destruction of the First Temple sent them into exile. And you know that Iran was Persia, the setting for the Purim story of Esther and Mordechai, who got the king of Persia to save the Jews from being wiped out by Haman. In modern-day Iran, Judaism is still recognized as an official religion, and worship is permitted. There are about 20,000 Iranian Jews, but they still walk a tricky tightrope. Zionists are demonized, and Iran's supreme leader regularly calls for Israel's destruction, not to mention funding terror groups, including Hamas and Hezbollah. Dianush Yousefi joins us now from Toronto to break down the current Iranian protest movement and explain why this struggle needs support from the international community and Canada's Jews. Maybe we can start before we talk about the current uh, protests. Uh, we'll go back a bit in, in time, if that's all right with you, and talk a bit about how your family lived in Iran and how they got to Canada. Sure. You were but mitzvah age, were you not, when you came to, to live in Canada? How did, what was the journey before you got here? How, why did you decide to leave? And tell us a little bit about you know, who, who your family was then. Yeah, we left in 82, um, and uh, I was 11. And in fact, since you mentioned the bar bat mitzvah, 
my parents had a huge party shortly before we left really for my brother's bar mitzvah but it was also your bat mitzvah too kind of thing and uh, um, while they my parents knew already at that point that we were going to leave soon but they had not told anyone else because you really couldn't you had to keep that to yourself just in case it slipped out and uh, if it did then obviously the authorities would uh, would try to stop us so we had that big party right before we left and I for my parents it was uh, bittersweet because it was such a wonderful event we had over 100 people in our home um, and uh, in fact they did serve alcohol um, if I recall correctly and I could be wrong technically there was some exemption that if you weren't Muslim you could have alcohol but you just didn't do it anyway because you could still get in trouble you didn't want you didn't want to have the police come and check on things but the way they they invited the neighbors too you want to make sure that nobody complains so you invite everybody and um we left iran by escaping that's how a lot of people did leave at the time and particularly jews uh, because we were not permitted to leave uh, so we escaped from tehran through to a um, small village that's by the iranian pakistani border and from there through pakistan and uh, uh, from Karachi to Islamabad, from there to Spain. We were in Spain for five months, uh, and my parents applied to both Canada and the U.S. Canada took us first, so we came here, uh, and my uncle was already here. I have an uncle who, uh, in the late 60s, came to Canada and studied at Ryerson, studied engineering. After many years, came back to Iran, got married, and then returned to Canada, so we already had some direct family here. And you were a family of how many? Who was in the family that, that were? In- uh, there were five of us. My parents, my brother, who's two years older than me, and my sister. It was her second birthday the day we left Iran, actually. And she got to spend it on the back of a pickup truck. Um, with uh, They'd given her some medication to help to have her fall asleep, actually, so that uh, we could be hidden because we were covered in the back of the pickup truck. They were allowed to practice their religion, right? You were allowed, it was an accepted religion as far as I understood, but there were not the freedoms that you have here in the West. Yes, certainly, you know, um, Jews and Christians, both religions are considered valid under Islam and we were allowed to practice, but we had to be uh, cautious. And and a lot of the freedoms that existed before the revolution were taken away. So, uh, but even, even before the revolution, um, as Jews, we would be careful not to necessarily advertise that we're Jewish because it was not always known who would be a uh, friend and not. Uh, but after the revolution, uh, everybody was, was more careful because th- there, is, there was a greater fear of being questioned, being stopped, uh, being harassed because we're Jewish, both by um, officials from the government who maybe weren't even necessarily acting on any orders. It just kind of gave some folks a carte blanche to harass. But more for, for me as a child, most of it was on a, on a different level. It was things like, you know, it, so in school, we were, we were careful. The students knew that I'm Jewish, but for example, we were ranked. Students were ranked based on our averages. It was kind of a big deal in Iran. Academics were really held in a very different view, I found, than, than here when I came here. 
Um, and uh, I came, I came second, and I know that they demoted me to third because because I I was Jewish. It was it's a big deal, but it was small too at the time, you know. Um, or there was a student who, when the teacher rearranged our seats uh, in grade four. She she said, I'm not going to sit next to that dirty Jew. Those are the kinds of things which, and I'm not downplaying them, which may have happened before the revolution too, some of it. But the after the is, Islamic Republic came to power, there was uh, a fair bit more uh, power and legitimacy behind the anti-Semitism in the sense that people felt freer um, to, to act on it. But our neighbors knew that we're Jewish. We had, we had family friends who were Muslim. Uh, it was just that ever-present sense of uh, being careful, being careful not to uh, just offer the information to anyone because we didn't know how they might, how they might react. Did you have to wear a head covering? What mm-hmm. was that like? Because you were 11, so. Yeah, absolutely. Everybody did. It didn't matter if you were from a different religion and it was not age-based. You wore it as uh, you wore it in elementary school. We wore the head cover, um, which uh, in school, uh, it's not just a scarf that you tied. It was the one that covers your forehead and covers your chin um, and just goes down to above your uh, chest. And then the school uniforms had pants. And over them was the looser uniform that had long sleeves and went down to the knees. And so you got here and let's fast forward to now. I know you've been watching, of course, uh, the protests. Personally, what's it been like for you to watch what's been happening? It's both incredible and scary and uh, also not terribly surprising anytime there's oppression that continues for this long. Um, eventually, people will will protest and will try to end it. You know, we saw it in 2009 as well. This one does, does feel different. Uh, the momentum here um, feels different. The defiance seems to be on a on a much higher level, and even the the backing, the reaction of the rest of the world seems to, seems to be different as well. There's more people, more people who are not connected to Iran that seem to be aware of it and behind it. There's more, I might even say interest, but it's, it's also a very different kind of world than it was even in 2009. You know, the impact of social media is incredible uh, because you get to see firsthand and immediately what's going on. Our, our hearts hurt and b- are both filled with hope for the people that were watching. What connection do you have with um, the non-Jewish Iranian community in Toronto and Canada? You know, and, and what are they asking you to do or what are you offering to do? What have you been doing, if anything? To, yeah, to I, think, I think that um, for for people who are really actively involved and in fact they they do want to see an end to the regime what they want is they want people to participate so go to the protest they want people to raise awareness they want there's um there's quite a few iranians who have a strong following on social media uh and they use that to raise awareness but they're asking people to do the same to raise awareness 
I, I think with the ultimate goal, because it, I mean, because ultimately all of this is only effective if it leads to change. The ultimate goal is to ensure that our governments here in the West, our European governments, take steps that will make Iran more accountable and that might result in in true change. You said Western. It, it really it really depends on who you speak to. There's there's definitely folks who uh, want the um, uh, the current regime to be uh, called um, labeled as uh, terrorists. Um, there's people who want uh, really much more significant steps taken, um, and the 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 decision that the Canadian government has made now will only be uh, effective if they can take those steps fairly immediately. I mean, if you're going to stop people from coming and, and you've announced it, but in the meantime, a few dozen of them leave Iran and come here or go to other places, then um, it, it won't have the same impact. Obviously, if you're going to seize people's assets, you have to do it fairly quickly. That, that, so it's a question of how fast is this going to happen? And, you know, I don't have so much of this is on social media. There's there's no confirmation. I did see um, a tweet earlier about an Iranian um, uh, official who seems to have purchased property in the nor- north of Toronto. Is it? I, I can't. I am not in any position. Yeah, to I saw that too. On those son of, yeah. uh, the Ayatollah, it was one of the sons of the Ayatollah. No, you know, you've been working for social justice for years in your career. How uh, should the Jewish community, what should the Jewish community be doing? Uh, I think that the first step is always greater awareness. And the if we talk about the Jewish larger community, I think there's a lot of um, uh, misconceptions or just not knowing enough about the Iranian community. There's, in fact, I, I imagine among Jewish people who are watching, and I don't think everybody is, but who are watching, there's probably... Um, and an awareness that not all Iranians are anti-Israel. In fact, um, there are there are certainly instances of Iranians who have have defied orders or things that appear like orders have gone out of their way to not condemn Israel. That they're not buying it anymore. You know, from time to time, you see people speaking about um, their anger at the Iranian government for uh, supporting Hamas. Uh, you know, that could be in part because they feel like, hey, we are all suffering here. What are you doing supporting that organization? It could also be that's the recognition that the animosity toward Israel is is is, a, is an scapegoat. It's used to deflect from problems within the Iranian government itself. You know, the actual declaration that, no, we're not going to we're not going to buy into your anti-American, anti-Israel rhetoric, which is not to say that the U.S. or Israel are beyond criticism. Of course, there's tons to criticize. It's the, it's the refusal to say, we will allow you to use those countries to deflect from all the, all the things that you bring upon us as a country. So those are incredible moments. And, and again, having the, even the uh, minimal conversations I've had with some Iranians here, I've become aware myself of the diversity and of the uh, friendship that can exist, um, that does exist between Iranian uh, Muslims and Jews. I think a lot of people would be surprised at that because I think most people think Iranians all hate Israel and all are anti-Semites, right? So there might be that sort of reluctance to get involved. I, I would say a couple of things to that. W- one is 
who do you build bridges with? It's not with people who are already your friends. They're already coming to your home. You have to do it with the people that either you see as your enemies or, and I'm not calling Iranian people enemies here at all, you, you build bridges with the people with whom you don't have that connection. So you have to, you have to reach out. It is especially these times when it's important to reach out. It's especially important for the Jewish community. And you know what? Even from a completely selfish perspective, if as Jews, we don't reach out to people and build bridges when they, when they need us, we are the ones who are going to be left alone. Dianush has also written several columns for the CJN in the past, and so we put a link to her website and some of her articles in our show notes for you. If you want to learn more about how to support the Canadian-Iranian community, send me an email and I'll connect you with some of the organizers. I'm at ebessner at thecjn.ca. And that's what Jewish Canada sounds like for this episode of the CJN Daily, sponsored by Metropia. Integrity, community, quality, and customer care. Today's listener shout-out goes to Tamar Freeman, a retired Canadian Army medic who served in Afghanistan. And she listens to our show from her home in BC. And we'll end with a little note on that commercial we've been playing all month at the top of the show. If you haven't listened carefully, you should, because it's promoting the upcoming concert by three winners of the Azrieli Music Prize. And one of these winners is an Iranian-Canadian composer, Iman Habibi. He isn't Jewish, but the piece he's premiering next week is a tribute to a famous Jewish-Persian poet who went by the name of Shaheen Shirazi. The poet lived 700 years ago and wrote thousands of pages of poems based on the Torah. Thanks for listening. We'll be back on Wednesday after Simchat Torah. Join author Karen Levine in marking the 20th anniversary of the extraordinary true story behind her beloved children's book, Hannah's Suitcase. You'll hear how the curator of a small Holocaust museum in Japan wound up on an incredible global journey, searching for a young girl named Hannah Brady. Sunday, October 30th at 2 p.m. at Beth Emmett Synagogue in Toronto. To learn more and register for free, visit beby.org event OCT30.